Well, I think we're on part four of uh, what is a happy person. Uh, we won't do part five for Easter. We'll have, uh, well, maybe we will. We'll see what uh, part five <laughs> entails. But uh, we will have a sort of, sort of a specially tailored uh, talk on Easter. But don't forget the sunrise service over at the Science of Mind Church, Easter morning. That won't get you out of this one, you understand. <laughs> so, I thought we'd start with a little review. Test time coming up soon. Uh, the reason that I mention this particular point so often is that, as you know, I counsel after the uh, service, and invariably, people have taken something that has been said, some sentence of truth, possibly even a quote from A Course in Miracles, and have translated it into something that they're supposed to do or something that they're supposed to not do. And so this seems to need constant reminder that the truth of God has nothing to do with a particular behavior. You can infer no rule. The rule is peace. The rule is the extending of peace, the giving of peace, the carrying of peace in your heart. The rule is to make life easier on your brother and your sister rather than to make life harder on your brother and your sister. That's the only rule. But as to how you will do that, there is no way of prescribing a particular action or eliminating another one and then handing this out to everyone and thinking that this will do anything. There are, of course, certain general things. There are things that, there are ways that the world usually operates. You can make generalizations about how most people get themselves in trouble, and if you don't do this, it's generally easier. But there are always exceptions. We think this world is a place of sterling logic, of absolute, uh, unending principle. But it's not. It's an insane asylum. <laughs> <laughs> but the insanity, interestingly enough, does operate. Uh, it has certain ebbs and tides. And it is possible to see that, for example, it's easier to walk home. It's easier to be a good, kind, decent, gentle person if, for example, you simplify your life, if your house is not cluttered, if your daily schedule is not insane and hectic, if you start your day off in a peaceful manner, if you stay away from things that call to your ego, Television, for example, calls to many people's ego, but it doesn't call to everyone's. So you can't even make a rule about that. So we do speak about peace here a great deal, but I, as you know, I, my television is now confined to uh, Scooby-Doo and uh, Sesame Street. Now, on Sesame Street, how many people here have watched Sesame Street? Oh, that's great. Right. <laughs> <laughs> on Sesame Street, there's a, uh, there are two children. This, this can happen on Sesame Street. There are two children that live together. They have no parents, but they're children, and they live together. Their names are Bert and Ernie. Now, Bert is cast in the role of being extremely dull. Uh, and peace is not like Bert. Bert... Um, do you know, do you, did you make models as a kid, model airplanes and, and uh, destroyer boats and uh, biplanes and all that? Bert makes uh, these things, but he makes them of uh, billboards. He makes models of mobile homes, he said. <laughs> and do you remember the great pretend games you had as a child, pretending all that you could fly 
pretending that you were Superman and you had your cape and you ran down the street, you know. Bert pretends that he is a hot bowl of oatmeal. <laughs> this is not peace, people. <laughs> and many people think that this is what peace means, means be, being blissed out and laid back, having heavy eyelids and a slow tongue. Doesn't mean that at all. Doesn't mean that at all. Peace is just a gentleness of the heart. It's an innocence, a vision. It means that you look kindly on other people. It means that you are people-oriented instead of issue-oriented. It means simply that you are happy and that as best you can, you love. And if you can't love, you don't get in a war with yourself. You just see, ah, oh, I can't love there and I can't love here, but I'm not going to battle with myself about that. I'll wait. I'll practice loving where I can love, and love will extend. We've talked a great deal in the last few Sundays about forgiveness. We've talked about how if you make a judgment, if you have a critical thought, that this does not leave your mind even though you have a, you've tried to attach it to someone else. It stays in your mind because you still believe it, and therefore it continues to hurt you. It rankers. It festers. But it does not mean that if you are to forgive, and if you are to practice forgiveness, and to work hard at it, and it takes very hard work to forgive, a friend of mine has just gone through several months of working extremely hard to forgive his parents. He worked very, very hard for a number of months before he began to make real progress, carrying a little uh, notebook around with him and writing down any angry thought and doing a number of other things. It does take a great deal of work, but it implies, once again, no particular behavior. So it does not mean that you're not supposed to get the divorce or you're not supposed to fire the person or any number of other things. It implies no behavior. It does mean that you must not fire someone out of anger if you are to forgive, if you are to let go of it, if you're not to keep on thinking about it and railing against it and feeling damaged because of what this person did supposedly. So of course you forgive them. But if it is necessary that you fire someone, you fire someone. If it's necessary that you step back from a relationship, you do that. If it's necessary to take your child out of a school, you take your child out of the school, even though there may be a teacher or two, that you must forgive. Forgive meaning not that you okay the behavior, that you pronounce it somehow all right, acceptable, understandable, but that you turn your eyes away from the behavior to something else that resides in the heart of that individual. That you see that within this person, there is the same yearning not to be alone, not to be at war with everything, to add, to bless. Who does not wish to be a blessing? Who does not wish to add rather than take away, all the time take away? But all of us start out not knowing how to do that. But the urge is there. And ironically, we do the very thing that we don't want to do. Many of you have seen this in grief. Many of you have been in very deep grief. You've had a child die, or you've had a spouse die, or a parent, or a close friend. And people come up and they say just the wrong thing, exactly the wrong thing. But if you will look be behind the words, beyond the words, to the gesture. What were they trying to do? It is so plain. Wasn't it plain that they were nervous? 
Wasn't it plain that they didn't know what to say? And this is just what they blurted out. How could you hold that against them when you see in their heart all they want to do is to let you know that they're your friend, that they want to comfort you, but of course they say just the wrong thing. Uh, you, um, well, thank goodness you have two other children. You'll be able to let go of this very easily because you've got the two other kids, you see. And people say that. And they actually think it's true, not having gone through the experience, do you see? So then do you turn and report this to someone else, what so-and-so said, when you know in your heart that the person meant no harm? Well, it was really a blessing that your husband died, your wife died. You say, it'll all work out. It'll be just fine. It's all part of the plan. Now, if you look beyond the words, and see the gesture. People don't know what to say. So often we do not know what to say, not just in the face of grief, but in the face of anything. And so develop this habit, daily practice it. Don't look at the person's words, look at their heart. What are they saying in their heart? And if you see what they're saying in your heart, it will make you happy. If you stop with what they're saying, with their words alone, it will eventually make you unhappy. Your ego will dwell on it long enough that you will find some reason to get angry about it, or offended, or depressed, to feel criticized, or to make a judgment. And this we simply don't want to do. So all you have to say is, I know in my heart I don't want to judge this person. Of course you're judging them. Of course what they did was uh, silly, dumb, cruel, whatever. Of course it was. Don't tell yourself it wasn't. But ask yourself, do I really want to hold this against this person? Or do I wish to bless them? Do I wish to forgive them? If I could forgive them, would I? And this is a little image I've mentioned before. I want you to close your eyes and see. This will show you the goodness in your heart if you doubt that it's there. Pretend that you have in your hands a miracle wand. See it quite distinctly. How is it? How long is it? What color is it? What is it made out of? And this miracle wand, I want you to pretend, can heal anyone of anything. It can remove any pain. It can heal any disease. It can clear up a bad attitude. It can brush away depression. It can bring light where there was nothing but cynicism before. It can bring gentleness where before there was a hard, insensitive blundering. There isn't anything it can't do to make good and to make happy. Now, simply ask yourself this question. If you could indeed remove any bad quality, any unhappy quality, any illness, any pain, any trouble, is there anyone you would not do this for? If you could, Of course there isn't. It's only because we believe we can't that we think we have to turn to the alternative of condemnation. It's because we don't think we can bless and help and lift up 
that we think we therefore must denounce. And so now, with your eyes closed, take one or two or three people. See the places where they're weak, where they're having trouble, where they're in pain. Anger makes people very unhappy. Cruelty makes people feel very, very lonely and cut off and misunderstood. Selfishness is not a happy thing to be. And so look at one or two or three people and in your mind, touch them now with your miracle wand. And watch them relax and be happy in this place where they were not happy before. Okay. All right, continuing on with our review. Uh, did you know Gail and I used to be secondary school teachers? This is where this obnoxious element comes in, do you see? <laughs> Tests and reviews. I've been many other things, too. I, I want you to know I, I was all these different things. But uh, secondary school teacher, I, I was also. Only for a year. <laughs> so, of course, you're going to forget, and you will condemn, and you will judge, and you'll say something against someone else. You will take sides, and of course, you'll wish that you hadn't. And so, what do you do? This is a review. What do you do? You simply start over. You learn to love your mistakes. You learn to love your mistakes. As we've pointed out so many times here, within the world you're doing nothing but making mistakes. And therefore your way home is a series of mistakes. If you hate your mistakes, and if you hate yourself for making your mistakes, then you stop. You make no progress. You don't get to go on to the next mistake. <laughs> it's just waiting there for you to make it. And so learn to love your mistakes. If you have seen it as a mistake, it has helped you. It's what you have not yet seen that you're doing that still hurts you. It's all the things we think we're doing that we don't think are mistaken. But we will see it's all mistaken. The only thing that's not mistaken is the peace, the gentleness, the blessing. And so turn and say, yes, of course I made a mistake. It took me a step nearer home. I'm very, very glad about this. I'm very happy about this. I'm so happy about it, I'm not going to dwell on it. We spend so much time criticizing ourselves. Perhaps you would like to try to notice that more. How much time do you spend going over what you just did and judging it, giving it a critique of some sort? And of course, this is so many of our schools are based upon this whole um, approach, although that seems to be changing. I, you just you just begin again. I've told you the story uh, at least one time. I told it to you, but gosh, how many times can I tell it? I can. Don't you think sixteen? <laughs> so this was only told to you once, and it was a long time ago. And it's simply an example of my uh, somewhat farmer, my semi-farmer absent-mindedness. Uh, <laughs> it seems to be on the way out, but there's a good chunk of it left. And this was also in the days in which I was counting calories, which is just about the most miserable thing you can do. If you want to have a growing sense of depression and loss, <laughs> then add up every calorie as it enters your mouth. And all you can say about the day is, they're running out. <laughs> 
But I had discovered this was back in the days when they, the diet drinks just hit the market. And um, yes, I lived back in those times, people. <laughs> and uh, someone had come out with something named Diet Riot Cola. I don't even know if it's still around. But this was the greatest thing I had ever run across. And so I went into a Safeway and bought a case of Diet Right Cola. Came back, set it in the driver's seat, and I got in the back. This is true. This is my... <laughs> this is... <laughs> I guess there was some symbolism there. <laughs> Well, I had made a mistake. <laughs> I looked furtively around. You know, they have pictures in dictionaries, like American Heritage has all these pictures. They should have a picture of me in the back se uh, seat beside the word furtively. <laughs> and I got in the, uh, took the diet right cope, and I, that's all you can do. That's all you can do when you make a mistake. You simply see that you've made the mistake, and you correct it, and you start over. You put the right thing in the, uh, in the driver's seat, and you put the diet right in the back. All right. That's a little pun. All right, now. So what have we done? Four of these? Is that right? I think so. Here's number five. What? There should be a chorus. Yes, we've done four. You've memorized. You've jotted these down. So I think this is number five of uh, what may be ten rules of how to be happy. You'll, we never know. <laughs> uh, I've actually, now remember I told you I'd shorten this to seven in the book. They've now been shortened to three. <laughs> you already know more than if you'd read the book. See? A happy person is not afraid. And so often on a spiritual path, and once again, as you've heard me say so many times, it's not necessary to use the word spiritual, to have a belief in God, to have a belief in surviving death, to have a belief that minds are in communication. It isn't even necessary to believe in whole wheat. It is not necessary to believe in anything except the possibility of kindness between people, gentleness between people, the possibility of it. And if you see that there's a possibility that people can treat each other harmlessly then you will work in that direction because it will make you so happy to do so. But when we get on this spiritual path, there is so often this aura of fear that begins to hang around us. We wonder whether or not we're doing it right. We think there is actually a right way to do it. And there's this monitoring of everything that we say and everything that we do and this tentativeness, and this fear. And this is why we're so quick to judge other people, because they didn't do it the way we did it, and therefore we think that is a comment on the way we do it. And so what we want to do is to realize that to be on a spiritual path is to be on a path that is so broad that it covers everything. It's to give yourself a latitude that is so great that you can consider any option at any time. And it is also to give you the right to not do anything, to throw away all these strictures, all these self-imposed duties and rules. And there are thousands of them in your life. All these ways that you think it has to be done. All these things during the day you think you have to do. All the little things you think you have to do before you go to sleep. 
I was reading a book recently, and it was pointing out uh, what I've pointed out here so often about how uh, the dental hygienist, every dental hygienist you go to gives you a different way of uh, brushing and flossing your teeth. So this shouldn't confuse you. It should simply affirm the fact that you just pick the most peaceful way of doing it. For you, what's the most peaceful way for you to do it? There's no right way to do it. And possibly, I know a guy who only brushes his teeth uh, three times a month. He never has a cavity. I would not recommend this at all. But there is something about his saliva. I didn't want to get into the subject, people, but... <laughs> uh, there's something about it that he just doesn't have the little gremlins in his mouth that we all have, and so this is fine. It, it works out for him, you see. You don't have to be afraid. Be not afraid is the age-old injunction. Don't worry, be happy, said Mayor Baba, right? Don't worry, be happy. <laughs> Once again, I started to say Mayor Bean, and it was not Mayor Bob. <laughs> All right. Someone just gave me a poster of that. I'm going to have it framed. I know many of you used to see that in the late 60s and the 70s, you know. It's a wonderful face, Mayor Baba. Don't worry. Be happy. That's all there is to it. And so watch this carefully. If ever you're afraid, there is no exactness about that. And that's the feeling, is that by being very afraid or anxious, you can get a certain perfection into your life. It's just the opposite. Brush away the fear. Don't be afraid to remain in the present. Don't be afraid to try out the premise that you have read in every sacred scripture, in every teaching of truth, that you've heard almost every speaker who's ever given a workshop or a seminar say that you can trust the present. You can trust your peaceful preference. You can trust what you peacefully wish to do now. If you will do what you peacefully wish to do now, you will take care of the things that need to be taken care of. And this premise that we have to endlessly worry about what needs to be done while we are doing something else is simply false. You will wake up and find that it is not necessary to worry about anything. You can live in the present. You can act from your peace. And you will still make the mortgage payments and uh, stop for the stoplights and get your regular checkups, and do everything that you need to do that seems to pertain to the future. Because everything in this world pertains to either the future or the past. And in review, we are either correcting something that was done, or we're doing something that would appear to have a future consequence. And so everything we do has nothing to do with the present. Nothing to do. You cannot, through your behavior, live in the present. But you can through your heart. You can allow the day to open like a flower. These are um, birds of paradise. And you can see that most birds of paradise, oh, here's one that does. You see, this one has four. It actually has five petals there. Do you see? Sometimes that happens. This was all explained to me before. I don't really know this. The guy's a horticulturist. Uh, <laughs> but you'll see this petal is first, and then there's this petal, and then this petal. And so that flower opened one petal at a time. Your day actually opens in that way. This takes tremendous practice. But it's a fact. There is a day. It's as if it's already in place. That's why you don't have to worry about having lost this relationship. There will be another relationship and another and another and another until you get it right. <laughs> and there will be a day and another day and another day. I'm not meaning, I don't mean romantic relationships necessarily. <laughs> 
Someone was moaning earlier. <laughs> Have you seen the bumper sticker, Love Stinks? <laughs> so I'm not talking about, oh, I, and the T-shirt. I love the T-shirt that's going around now. Life is hard, and then you die. <laughs> so... There is one perfect day that awaits you. It comes to you every morning when you awake. It doesn't matter even if you overslept. It's still there. It doesn't matter if you didn't get enough sleep and you woke too early. It doesn't matter what your first thought was. It awaits you. It awaits you until that solar day is over. It can be grabbed even in the last few seconds of a solar day. It waits there gently and quietly for you to change your mind. For you to change your mind as to how you're going to live your life. And this day opens like a flower, petal by petal. It is possible to simply wait on the day to open, for each event to come to you. It is possible to lay aside the age-old habit of rushing into the next event, of thinking about what we're going to do next while we're doing the thing at hand. It is possible to realize that in a sense, not in the sense that so many people try to make it, but in a sense, the day is planned. It isn't planned in the sense that... Uh, you know, you're, you're out of uh, nutrigrain. Corn or nutrigrain wheat or nutrigrain wheat and raisins, which are your only three choices among the commercial uh, cereals. If you want no preservatives and no sugar and no additives. I don't, actually don't know if that's true. There may be a hundred. Oh, I think uh, Cheerios. Right, Gail said Cheerios. And what about grape nuts? Oh, what a mistake I made. All I can do is begin again. <laughs> <laughs> it is possible to see that the tone of the day, the gentleness of the day, the heart of the day is planned. And in a sense, this will seem like the events themselves have been perfectly picked out, that each petal is perfect. Now, this takes a great deal of work. You get up in the morning and you let the first event come to you. It's, it's, it's a sense of it. And you give it your full attention and you do it because you love doing it and you realize that you can love doing anything. You can at least be peaceful doing anything. And you do it and then you wait for the next event to come and the next event. There's nothing uh, silly and about this, nothing. There's not this silly uh, guidance stuff about this. This is a, an inner sense, so you don't have to sit there and figure out what it is and read signs as to what the next thing you're supposed to do and all that stuff. This is just a sense of your heart, and it is one with your peaceful preference. It is one with what you want to do. We are so afraid of our will. We are so afraid of what we want to do. So that, we all, so that we operate on this, this surface sea of wants that comes from our past. I can safely say that everyone in this room, 90% of the time during the day, is doing what he or she does not really want to do. Although many times we think it is, because it's so habitual. We've never stopped to look. What is our peaceful preference? Yes, I've always done it this way, but do I wish to? And there's nothing hard about that. There's nothing exacting about it. And then the pedal opens, and then you go to the next event, and the pedal opens. And you do this with people, as we've said here before. You don't rush to people. Let people come to you. Now, this is not physically. Let the words come to you. Don't be quick to speak. Don't be physically slow to speak either. Just let the words come. You have words to say. It is as if the conversation has already taken place. 
a perfect conversation between you and this person. And if you will just be still enough and calm enough, the words will come out of your mouth and they will be perfect. Be perfect not because the words are perfect, not because the grammar is perfect, not because you got the commercial serials right or anything like that, but they'll be perfect because they're gentle. And it's so easy for anyone to be gentle. At the moment, uh, we have the uh, Jennifer Pollan. Uh, it's so funny that Santa Fe is listed on so many maps as being allergy-free. <laughs> uh, and now the junipers are red with pollen, and many people are affected by this after a while. Um, I have a, uh, Gail and I have a psychiatrist friend, and one of his patients, oh, so did you know that there are male and female juniper trees? And one has pollen and the other doesn't. And uh, my psychiatrist friend's patient said to him, I resent being involved in the sex life of junipers. <laughs> and so now many of us are afraid even to step out of our front door because of the pollen. We're afraid of the things we eat. We're afraid of the air we breathe. We're afraid of the words that come out of our mouth. We're afraid that we won't do the things that we need to do, and somehow they won't get done. And so what do we do about the fear? Review-wise, <laughs> uh, as, uh, what's his first name, Edward Newman? Edward Newman? Edward Newman. Edward Newman would love that. Review-wise, We can say this about fear and how to rid ourselves of it. Your first course, your first step, if at all possible, should be overt and not mental. Now, this is one of the misconceptions that often develops on a spiritual path, is that we're somehow supposed to do everything through mental means, that it's somehow higher to do things through mental means. And so we get, we get even the silly conception of how we're supposed to die. We're even afraid of how we're supposed to die. Now, first of all, it's a good thing to realize you're going to die. You're going to die. And there's nothing wrong with it. It is part of your way home. It is not the key to your way home, as so often has been thought in the past. It's not that it will do anything for you, but it's perfectly all right. We don't need to get into a battle with people who are dying, trying to get them not to die. Nor do we need to get into a battle if they wish to try something that may allow them to live longer. We don't need to try to convince them that they should go ahead and die. We don't need to take a stand on that any more than we take a stand on anything else. But in the spiritual movement, there is a belief that there are unspiritual ways to die. Now, I'm not sure what the spiritual ways to die are. I guess it's uh, what people call natural causes. I, I called a, an MD this morning uh, and asked him to tell me what, what is meant by that term. Because you always so and so died of natural causes. We see that all the time in the paper, on news broadcasts, and so forth. So here, I guess, are the spiritual ways to die, according to this particular doctor. Heart attack. That's spiritual. Stroke. Emphysema and pneumonia. Kidney failure. That's natural, do you see? Isn't that ridiculous? If you die of natural causes, you're probably going to die of one of those things. Your kidneys will fail, or your heart will have a heart attack, or you'll have a stroke, or so forth. This should not be an unpleasant subject. I see many of you grimacing, <laughs> clutching your pew. This is not an unhappy subject, people. There, this should not be an unhappy thing. And what are the unspiritual things? 
somehow people are not supposed to die of cancer. It is, it is assumed that if you are spiritual enough, you will not die of cancer. This is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. There are, in fact, as I understand, a few very common forms of cancer that begin in most people and they continue. And if you live long enough, you will, in fact, die of cancer because there's a particular one or two forms of cancer that simply grow very, very slowly in the body. And if you live long enough, then it eventually manifests itself. You see how silly this is? If you die of a plane crash, you weren't a spiritual person. And we all knew it. We suspected it. <laughs> this is so silly. We are even afraid of the way we're going to die. And we judge people about the way they're dying. And we try to change the way they're dying. I've told you the story. And I'm sure she wouldn't mind by using her name, Sharon Winner. You saw her on the Phil Donahue program a couple times and other television programs. She went to the Center for Attitudinal Healing in Tiburon, California. <clears throat> she was one of the children that had a very rare form of cancer, very virulent. She would go into remission for long periods and then it would come back and they would change the chemotherapy. And the, the chemotherapy and the radiation therapy and other things were extremely painful, damaging, and uh, she eventually got tired of it. Her body got tired of it. I used to talk to Sharon on the phone. And I can remember well the time in which she decided to die. She was very peaceful about it. Very peaceful about it. It was just, she just simply, there was one more treatment she could, she could go through. They didn't give it much hope. It would be very painful. Once again, she'd lose all of her hair. She'd have to stay in the hospital, which she didn't want to do, and on and on and on. But because she was somewhat of a celebrity in San Francisco, because she'd been on television so many times, she had a beautiful, wonderful message. Jerry and I uh, traveled with her a couple of times, and the three of us gave talks together, and she was just a light to people. People found out about this. Oh, Sharon's dying. And they rushed to her bedside to give, the, give her their latest cure. And prayer groups were formed to save her from her gentle, gentle decision. And she was a very, very kind girl. And she saw all these people, and it became almost a phenomenon. There were prayer groups all over the city for a while there praying for Sharon to get well as if she would not die sooner or later as if we could judge what is the right time to die how can we judge how long a life should be whether a person's work is done what it is they have to do now do we know what it is they have to do now we are in no position to judge this and of course, these people were very well-meaning. There is no criticism of them. This is just a phenomenon. I'm going to give you an example of how it so often works. And she was a very kind girl. And she saw all these people praying for her, coming to the hospital praying for her, visiting her and everything. And she got very confused. And she thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't die. And she went through several months of hell because she was so gentle and kind and she didn't want to let these people down. And it took her several months to once again get back to the realization that it was all right for her to do this, that she wasn't going to let anyone down. And I know that many of you feel betrayed by the fact that we're going to close this church at the end of the year. I understand that. But the time will come in which you will have to make certain decisions. Will I get closer to God if I do this? Will it make it easier for me to turn to God if I do that? And you may not always get ego approval if you do it. But there is no... How long should a church last? 
ten years, twenty? Should it go on generation after generation? Should we have branch churches? There are people who have wanted to have branch churches at the dispensable church. I mean, if you don't think the world is crazy, people. <laughs> There's actually people who want to call themselves dispensable ministers. <laughs> so, how long should it last? And so you do not betray anyone if you follow your heart. It may be perceived that way if you decide to die, if you decide to change the job, although the employer is deeply devoted to you. Do not be afraid to change the job. If it is gentle, if it's not a hurried decision, if you've looked in your heart, do not be afraid to change anything. I've been told by many people, especially relatives, that I look so much better without a beard. <laughs> I actually, in certain parts of the country, uh, get a certain amount of flack still by having a beard. It is simply easier to have a beard. Beards grow by themselves. It's so funny. Why did you decide to grow that beard? <laughs> you know, <laughs> as if there's little miniature rototillers, you know, on your. <laughs> <laughs> it just grows by itself, you see. <laughs> and as soon as this church is over, I'm going to whack off my hair and uh, just let it uh, be there instead of uh, going through all the combing stuff and everything. I guess I'll do that. I don't know. It's easier. I'm not going to shock people now. They'll think it's some sort of sign, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's not that you have to make a lot of dramatic changes. Don't be afraid to simplify. Don't be afraid to wait if you don't know what to say. Be slow to judge. Be slow to worry. <laughs> All right. Well, we got through another one. Is that five? Oh my gosh. All right. That's pretty good, isn't it? Uh... How should we end this? We're going to end with Tui doing a real nice number. Should we have a little meditation? Okay, let's have a little meditation, then Tui will do this number. We'll do a little meditation from a book of games. Um, so you're going to pretend like you're Robin Hood. You've got uh, one of those little arrows. What is it called? Sheaths or quiver? Quiver. Gosh, what a wonderful word. Uh, you've got a quiver on your back, uh, or a little golf club. I mean, excuse me, a little golf. What are they called? <laughs> Bag. Bag. <laughs> Close your eyes. <laughs> little teeny golf bag. A little quiver, and it's filled with balls of light. Little balls of light. And no one can see this, but they think you have a shoulder itch because any time during the day you can just reach up and grab one of these little balls of light. And here's the magical thing about it. If you toss the ball up in the air, it expands, it doubles in size. So mentally reach up now, take one of these little balls of light out and toss it up in the air and notice that that's what happens. It gets twice as big. And if you toss it again, it gets even bigger. Now, if you'll just gently squeeze it, it goes back to its original size, and you can put it back in the little bag. Now, here's what you want to do. Look over your body, look over your house, your apartment, your room, over your car, your place of work. Look over this gentle city of Santa Fe. This gentle state of New Mexico. This country that has tried so hard, so hard. Look over this world. 
It indeed tries hard. Is there any question about that? Pick out one or two places. It may be an old age home. It may be a bombed out hospital. It may be a particular place of business that seems to be going under. It may be some room in your house that's not happy. And take a ball of light, toss it up in the air, and then propel it over to this place. You can blow it over, flip it over, pass it over like a basketball. You can punt it, anything, roll it, whatever you wish to do. Send it over. Watch it surround this place, this sore place. Cover it. Heal it. Bring happiness where before there was sadness. I'll be silent and do that a few times. For just a moment, be a healer and a blesser and nothing else. Okay, my fellow dispensapalians, we're going to uh, end uh, with one of Tui's uh, lingering mantras. Now remember, the cheese is not back there today. If you want to avoid the sugar blues, you can, take, you can hang a right. Just as you pass that door, you won't even get to the sugar room. But next Sunday, we'll have the cheese also. So here's Tui.